I wish I could feel the fish, he thought. He is my brother, but I must kill him and keep strong to do it. This isn't a story about man having dominion over nature and being able to use nature in whatever way humans want to. And let's go out and smash nature and show our dominance. This is a story about us being interconnected with nature, us having respect for nature. He almost feels bad that he has to kill the fish. He's almost apologizing to the fish in certain moments. In today's class, you'll hear a discussion between me and Gabe and Kate about Ernest Hemingway's novel, The Old Man and the Sea. And at the end of this recording, I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that comes from Ernest Hemingway himself. Unsurprisingly, Ernest Hemingway, very opinionated, had a lot of opinions about writing and how to write. And so you can find many useful, provocative, inspirational, or discouraging quotes about writing by him. Here's one I like. Quote, The blue-backed notebooks, the two pencils and the pencil sharpener, the marble-topped tables, the smell of early morning sweeping out and mopping, and luck were all you needed. For luck, you carried a horse chestnut and a rabbit's foot in your right pocket. There's three things I really love about this. First of all, that he emphasizes the importance of hard work, right? Uh, There's a detail in this little sentence, uh, the smell of early morning. So he's getting up early to write. He's recognizing that writing is labor. I saw this point come up in one of the digital dialogue comments. You have to get up and work hard at this, just like any other profession or task or calling or art. Second thing I like about this is his emphasis in luck. Yes, you do have to get up and work hard, but not everything you write is going to be as good as everything else. It's not like waking up each morning to dig holes or build a shed. It's very hard to predict which pieces of writing you start will end up as something really truly great. And so I think it's very important to emphasize that yes, we do need to work hard at it, but there is an element of mystery, of unpredictability. This is what people for millennia have referred to as the muse. Sometimes the muse smiles on us and sometimes she doesn't. But I think Hemingway recognized that no matter what, the most important thing, the thing that is in our control, is that we have to make sure that when the muse does come, she finds us hard at work. I also, the third thing I love about this quote is how simple it is. All you need are the notebooks, the pencils, an early morning, and luck. Don't overcomplicate things. Don't assume that there are secrets or techniques or skills or lessons or grand revelations about how to become a great writer that you don't know and you need to find someone and force them to tell you how exactly to do it. I really do think he's boiled it down to the essentials. You need writing implements, you need to work hard, and you need to rely on some element of luck. Do that for 30 years and I guarantee you, you will write something very, very good. And for a further look into exactly what this kind of hard work and luck and persistence can get you, let's go into that chat between me and Kate and Gabe about The Old Man and the Sea. So, uh, Kate, meet Gabe. Gabe, meet Kate. We've probably never actually met because we've never, we've never, you know, met as a class. Uh, I want this to be a kind of live conversation 
So we can address whatever aspects of the book you want to. I said in one of those emails that we're going to talk mostly about the first half of the book and the setup of the book. And I mean, not that it's not that the, the ending of the book is full of twists and turns, some kind of M. Night Shyamalan style surprise, but still maybe we should try to avoid spoilers, major spoilers. You know what I mean? In case you have classmates listening to this that haven't yet gotten to the ending. So to begin with, I'll just kind of take 30 seconds to talk about maybe some of the things we could talk about. And uh, then I'll just ask you guys what your favorite parts of the book so far are, your favorite scene, your favorite aspect of the book, your favorite character, your favorite sentence. I made a list of like potential topics. We could talk a little bit about character and character's desires, talk about characterization, which is maybe slightly different and tension, rising tension in the book. I think I want to talk a little bit about style and the style of his writing compared to the style of David Foster Wallace or Nabokov's writing, because they're quite different in terms of style. And if we have time, maybe we could talk about the set, like setting and the moments that Hemingway in the book describes the scene and the ocean and that little, you know, fishing village. But since you are both, you know, readers and both writers and both fellow Hemingway enthusiasts, I'll now ask you guys to just mention what you love so far about this book. If you have a favorite part, you know, tell us what it is. Yeah, uh, my favorite moment in the book, I guess, would kind of be the one that just as I was reading the book, it was the one that stood out as being like, why is this here? And then I had to think about it. Okay. Um, And then I think I kind of found something that I really, really liked. was kind of the running under narrative of Santiago, like getting his pride back um, from his youth, I guess. Um, like it talks about the wrestling match yeah. um, as kind of one of like his great exploits or whatever. But my favorite part specifically that I was thinking about was his dreams about the lions. So beautiful. Yeah, so beautiful. It felt very out of place at first. Um, and then I remembered that a group of lions is called a pride. And maybe that's very simple. Wow. But I liked it a lot because, like, he stops dreaming about lions at some point. Like, when he's out on the water or some at some point he stops dreaming about lions. Yeah, I really liked that. As, like, in the beginning when he's in his little shack. Yeah. Um, just thinking about, like, days gone by kind of. This is so great. I had never made that connection before. But he does have this very, you know, he, he kind of boasts to the boy that he's once been to Africa. And he has this memory that kind of tattooed itself onto his brain that, yeah, he once saw these lions on the beach. And of course, a lion is this very obviously noble and majestic creature. But you're absolutely right to say that it, Hemingway chose well in that choice of animal. It couldn't have been like a leopard or a cheetah or something, I think, because, yeah, the pride lions... Like a, a lion is, is on top of the food chain. It's like, like you said, a majestic animal, but it still has to go out every day and like establish that it is this creature like on top of the food chain. Now, like, uh-huh. like as a fisherman, he still has to go out every single day. And, you know, it's been what, 84 days since he's caught anything. But, and, and people are starting to like lose faith. The boy's mother, for example, came and says like, you can't fish with this guy anymore go find somebody else to fish with right he's not this this lion in his prime anymore but like he's still dreaming of that like it was not so distant i think let's talk about santiago more let's and let's begin by reading i want to spend some time on the first 
sentence and maybe the first couple of paragraphs because and then i'll ask you guys i mean you've already partly answered this question i wanted to ask you guys what kind of man he is and you've already begun to answer that question but there's a lot more to say so i'm just going to start reading the first sentence um and maybe i'll continue reading the first couple paragraphs and i just want to linger over them because i think we can learn so much about writing and how to write especially fiction by these this opening i think it's in a lot of ways kind of perfect so this is the very beginning of the novel he was an old man who fished alone in a skiff in the gulf stream and he had gone 84 days now without taking a fish you know i once had this uh, writing teacher who told me an anecdote about one of his writing teachers and what something that one of his writing teachers used to do is the students would turn in like stories or chapters of novels and in front of the class this teacher would stand up there and begin to read this student piece not out loud but just silently to himself which is kind of more horrifying and would these would be these these pages would be stapled in the corner and the teacher would rip off page after page and throw it in the trash and say there's nothing at stake there's nothing at stake until he found a page where the story quote unquote began so this phrase there's nothing at stake you know it's a gambling metaphor and if you take a lot of creative writing classes you're going to be hearing this phrase a lot there's nothing at stake you know it just means that you've you've risked a lot or there's something on the page that the speak that the characters are risking or wanting or desiring but can't get right so if you put all of your chips into the pile in a poker game you really want to win there's a lot at stake you know so i think one very common piece of writing advice that is given to aspiring writers of fiction is that the character your protagonist has to want something and they have to not be able to get it at the beginning of the book and readers have to know on the very first page what this character wants listen just listen to this first sentence again he was an old man who fished alone in a skiff in the gulf stream and he had gone 84 days now without taking a fish one sentence and we know exactly his obstacle we know what he wants and we know that he can't get it right so it's like it's this immediate setup i just think that's totally brilliant it surprised me because i thought that the book was just going to be you know him trying to get a fish and then he gets a fish and then we're done from the first <laughs> sentence and then he gets the albacore like immediately okay and it's like oh no we're going to keep on going yeah and so it surprised me it kind of subverted my expectations there maybe that's just because i don't know a lot about fishing but i think it was still like it worked for me in that way what about you gabe i think one thing we can learn from like the first sentence alone is just like the style the book is so much different than it read so far you know it just states it like yeah so he was an old man he had conny fish not like david foster wallace who describe it in like tons of detail for six sentences and then be like oh yeah fish by the way yeah. that's right <laughs> yeah this is a great thing to point out it's proof that there are thousands of ways to be a great writer and some of these ways contradict each other right so you don't have to be elaborate and flowery and full of ornamentation and weird effects you can be very very simple you can write with the vocabulary of a 10-year-old you know and and still write a masterpiece I just think every single phrase in this opening sentence is great. He was an old man. So already we sympathize with him because you know, we sympathize with old people. 
who fished alone, that word alone, I think, makes him feel lonely. So it increases our sympathy for him. And then, yeah, he had gone 84 days now without taking a fish. So that specificity, I think, is really key because it shows us that he's counting or the village is counting. Somebody is counting. And this, this, this problem is getting bigger and bigger by the day. I'll keep reading a little bit. And then after I read, I'm going to ask you guys how you would describe him. Like, let's, let's try to list some of his traits. I'm talking about Santiago. And let's pinpoint areas in this book that Hemingway teaches us who this character is. So, I mean, we are all aspiring writers. We want to be able to achieve this level of excellent characterization. So I'm going to read the first few paragraphs, and I'll ask you what kind of man Santiago is and where in the book we get that, an insight into that. And don't limit your answer to this chunk I'm going to read. I just think it's great writing. So he was an old man who fished alone in a skiff in the Gulf Stream, and he had gone 84 days now without taking a fish. In the first 40 days, a boy had been with him. But after 40 days without a fish, the boy's parents had told him that the old man was now definitely and finally Salau, which is the worst form of unlucky. And the boy had gone at their orders in another boat, which caught three good fish the first week. It made the boy sad to see the old man come in each day with his skiff empty, and he always went down to help him carry either the coiled lines or the gaff and the harpoon and the sail that was furled around the mast. The sail was patched with flour sacks and furled it looked like the flag of permanent defeat. The old man was thin and gaunt with deep wrinkles in the back of his neck. The brown blotches of the benevolent skin cancer the sun brings from its reflection on the tropic sea were on his cheeks. The blotches ran well down the sides of his face, and his hands had the deep creased scars from handling heavy fish on the cords. But none of these scars were fresh. They were as old as erosions in a fishless desert. Everything about him was old except his eyes, and they were the same color as the sea and were cheerful and undefeated. So what do you two think that we can learn about characterization from those three paragraphs? So those were three paragraphs, the first in the book. What can we as aspiring writers learn about characterization and how to establish a character, how to describe a character? I actually have two quotes that correspond really well with that that could help to give some insight. Great. First is, every day is a new day. It's better to be lucky, but I would rather be exact than when luck comes, you are ready. So in the, the very beginning there, it states that he is Salau, yeah. very unlucky, but you know, he, he counters that by saying, like, it doesn't matter. Like, I'll be ready when I, when I do get that luck. Which is, um, to me, it's a sign of determination. He's, he's like, very firm in his, his objective. Um, the, second, the second quote um, is, but, but man is not made for defeat. A man can be destroyed but not defeated. And, you know, yeah like the flag of uh, permanent defeat. It looked like the flag of permanent defeat, but he just, he, he states in his other quote that he just refuses to be defeated. And this was another thing I wrote about in my digital dialogue post is that two of his main characteristics are determination and perseverance. Right. The first sentence literally says like, he spent a third of a year failing to catch a fish. And, you know, later on when he actually does catch the fish, things go out for him once again in, in many ways but he he doesn't give up and kind of tying back to the lions is um in the very end i hope this doesn't spoil too much but he he dreams once again of the lions you know like so the dream comes back it's gone for a while and then comes back yeah refuses to let it go He's this just, is great 
What about you, Kay? Um, I was thinking kind of along the same lines, uh, like this determination is kind of present throughout. And one of the quotes that's super short uh, that I liked a lot was, now mm. is no time to think of what you do not have. Think of what you can do with what there is. Mm. Um, I like that a lot. He's constantly kind of chiding himself for his thoughts that are pessimistic or wishful. Like he's constantly kind of trying to ground himself back in reality. Um, and I, I really love that. I think that that's done really, really well in Hemingway's style because uh -huh. it lends itself really well to simplicity sounds reductive, but like to the simplicity of his style and to kind of the straightforwardness of it. Yeah. Um, because Santiago never lets himself get too far away from the here and now. Wow, you you both have said such a whole great, delicious menu of amazing things, all of which deserve elaboration. I actually have another quote that goes to uh, with hers when he says or or thinks. I suppose it's silly not to hope. It's a sin. It's a sin not to hope. Yeah, mm -hmm. that just goes along really well with uh, Keith. So. Um, he is, we learn from, okay, so I just want to kind of underscore or highlight some of these things that you said. And again, we're trying to harvest lessons that we can learn as aspiring writers. If you're writing a story or a novel, think about your first page, think about your first three paragraphs, and think about ways in which you can make your character, your protagonist, as clear, as vivid, as three-dimensional, and as nuanced as Hemingway does. So already on the first, in the first three paragraphs, we, we can see him. I love those details about the brown blotches of benevolent skin cancer, right? So we see this very speckled face, and we see a very lined face, right? And we see scars on his hands, right? Everything, and then we, and then we have this. Everything about him was old except his eyes, and they were the same color as the sea, so that's another visual detail, and were cheerful and undefeated. So you guys are both absolutely right to highlight this aspect of him. He's very old and frail and weak, and yeah, that that sail that Gabe highlighted at the end of the first paragraph where it used to be out and furled, sorry, it used to be unfurled, but now furled, it looks like the flag of permanent defeat. It's kind of like the old man himself where he used to be strong and now he's kind of frail and weak. And yet there's something inside of him that is permanently indestructible, you know, and permanently hopeful. He uh, literally says at one point, I may not be as strong as I think, but I know many tricks and I have resolution, so. <laughs> yeah, so he's weak uh, in, in body, but strong in spirit. He's determined. And this quote that you just pointed out, Gabe, shows us that he's humble. Like he knows his weaknesses. I may not be strong, but I have resolution. So he's, he's humble. He's determined. He's humble. He perseveres. Anything else you want to add to the list of who Santiago is? Um, I think he's very sympathetic. Um, he does that a lot with like the flying fish and the birds uh, and the turtles. Um, but also, I think with Madeline, he does it a little bit uh, where it mentions where they're kind of getting like this meal ready. Yeah. Uh, but there is no meal. Yeah. <laughs> like the pot of yellow rice. Oh, and it's I so think sad. it's so sad. But I think he's kind of keeping this fiction to kind of spare Madeline's feelings a little bit. Like, Madeline feels so much for this old man. Like he's, yeah. he's crying at the end. Like, uh, and at the beginning, he's like, I have to get him water in here. Like it's like two streets down or whatever. And I think that the old man knows that and that 
the fake pot of yellow rice is kind of more for the boy than it is for him. So the question I could ask is, what is if you're writing this book, pretend you have the idea for this book. He's an old man. He fishes alone. I want this to be a story about him catching a fish and not giving up. Why include this character of the little boy? Why is the character of the little boy necessary? What does that do to the character of the old man? What does that do to the narrative as a whole? What purpose does that serve? Imagine the book with no little boy and what's missing? What's lost? Um, I think that you would lose some of the progress that happens towards the end. I don't want to talk too much about the end. But um, like there in the short story, like the immediate, there isn't a ton of progress, I guess you could say, like with the catching of the fish. Yeah. But in the longer story of kind of Santiago's like own like image of himself and sort of his standing within the village there is. Okay. And I think that without Madeline you would lose some of that. And and what you said previously about the fictions that they're both keeping up for each other. So the man lies about the breakfast that he ate and the boy doesn't call him out on it. The boy lets him tell this story, tell this lie. They both kind of need each other, right? I mean, the boy, I think, needs the man as a symbol of... I, no, I take that back. I hate the word symbol. We're not going to talk about symbols in this class. The boy, the, the boy needs the man as visible proof of... Visible proof that human dignity is indestructible in a way. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if that makes any sense. But they're both interconnected in this very necessary and personal way. And they support each other. They prop each other up, yeah? Physically and also kind of, I think, psychologically or emotionally. Gabe, any thoughts about this? I think this is like slightly different train of thought. But um, one thing that we wouldn't have without the boy would be um, like all of the comparisons between Santiago and DiMaggio. Okay. Uh, how to say that name, but... Um, I think, yeah, DiMaggio. Yeah, the baseball player. Yeah. He's popping up, you know. He suffered this huge injury, and yet he went out there every day. And he kept right. playing, and eventually he was successful, and he won. And it's like, it almost becomes this symbol of the old man who succeeds regardless of 84 days of failure. Yeah. That's another thing I love about the old man. So the old man, we were immediately invested and care for. I just want to emphasize this because when you write your own stories with your own characters, you want your readers to care about your characters. So make them sympathetic, give them virtues, but also give them flaws, you know, make them frail, let them tell lies. And I also, one thing I love about the old man is that he has his own heroes. You know, he worships these baseball players. So he doesn't think that he is alpha lion. You know what I mean? He also has people that he looks up to. I just find that so endearing. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's almost as if like the, the character is very human in his portrayal. They don't, the way the the book is written just allows the the character to be written very matter of factly, but be interpreted very humanely. I don't, I don't know if that makes any sense. I think humane is the best. That's, that's a great word. Everyone in this book is treated so humanely, like with such charity and such compassion. Yeah. I think that's really, really great. Okay. Can I ask, so um, I'm going to ask you to elaborate on, what you hinted at regarding the turtles and the flying fish and the sea life, you implied something like that was a way that Hemingway is telling us more about the character of Santiago. So I want to hear more about that, but just not to put too fine a point on what we've already been talking about before we move on, that the boy and DiMaggio and the lions and eventually the fish, which we'll get to are all character foils for the old man. A foil, a foil is 
a kind of mirror image that tells that helps tell the reader more about the protagonist and also helps tell the protagonist more about him or herself. So we there's a kind of version of Santiago in the boy, and there's a kind of version of Santiago in the lions, and there's there's a kind of version of Santiago in DiMaggio. So these are all like multifaceted reflections of who Dima, of who Santiago is. But Kate, can you say a little bit more about how you see the sea life and the turtles? Uh, what work are they doing? What did you mean? Yeah, um, there's a quote uh, about the flying fish that I think illustrates this really well. Um, he was very fond of flying fish as they were his principal friends on the ocean. He was sorry for the birds, especially the small, delicate, dark terns that were always flying and looking and almost never finding. Mm. And he thought the birds have a harder life than we do, except for the robber birds and the heavy, strong ones. Why did they make birds so delicate and fine as those sea swallows when the ocean can be so cruel? She's kind and very beautiful, but she can be so cruel, and it comes so suddenly, and such birds that fly, dipping and hunting with their small, sad voices, are made too delicately for the sea. Um, it reminded me, where he's talking about, like, they have a harder life, except for the, the robber birds. And it reminded me of how he uh, looks down is the wrong word, but... Uh, how he kind of doesn't respect the way that the young fishermen have like their their boats that are all tricked out and like their yeah. gadgets and like they talk and they have a radio on their boat and it it kind of puts the old man more in line with the sea life than with the other fishermen okay and he talks yeah. about turtling also but yeah yeah i like that a lot i actually have the the quote about the turtles that goes I think best with that. It says most people were heartless about turtles because a turtle's heart will beat for hours after it has been cut up and butchered. But the old man thought I have such a heart too. Well, I completely agree with Kate is that, you know, the old man is more a representation of the sea than he is of, you know, his trade. Mm. And that, that even goes back to, to the color of his eyes, which are mm. the exact color of the sea. That's great. So if you're a writer, what are we learning? Uh, teach your readers about your character through the images that surround them. Is that one thing we're learning? Use the images of their context as a way to bring out their inner being. Yeah. As a, I mean, Hemingway could have just said he was, and maybe sometimes he does because he says stuff like, you know, he does say uh, his eyes were cheerful and undefeated. So he does say this in abstract general ways. But wouldn't you two agree that mostly Hemingway is defining Santiago's inner being using external concrete images like the turtles and just the sympathy that, that he has for the birds? Like, oh, this is a man who cares about sea life and has respect for his fellow creatures and pays them this kind of wonderful reverence. And, and he hates sharks and, you know, some other type. But he has this, like, code of, yeah, humane to use Gabe's word, compassion for the things that surround him. Definitely. Another thing that goes along with that is he had so much respect for the marlin. Yeah, we should probably maybe talk more about that. So what do you have to say about that, Gabe? I just think, how much can I say? <laughs> well, we know, I mean, by, by the time we're halfway through the book, we know that he's caught the marlin and he's yeah. having a hard time reeling him in. Yeah, this is the kind of epic man versus man versus fish battle. Yeah, it's, it's something you'd see on television, you know. <laughs> but he he spent three days fighting this fish, and 
at the end of it, it's almost like he has like this reverence for it. Yeah. I'd have to find a quote, but it was, uh, he was talking about bringing it back to the villagers. And he said something along the lines of like, I feel like they don't deserve it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Are they even worthy of this fish? He says, I, I wish I could feel the fish. He thought he is my brother, but I must kill him and keep strong to do it. Right. So yeah, it's this very strange. Maybe this is another way that he defies our expectations, that it's not, this isn't a story about man having dominion over nature and being able to use nature in whatever way humans want to. And let's go out and smash nature and show our dominance. This is a story about us being interconnected with nature, us having respect for nature. He almost feels bad that he has to kill the fish. He's almost apologizing to the fish in certain moments. So that is another way that Hemingway makes us fall in love with Santiago as a person, that he is absolutely humane and caring, even in the act of killing. It's a very weird paradox. I think that, I don't know, he just gave off a feeling of um, almost old-fashioned courtesy. Yeah. Character. Yeah, courtesy is a good word. Um, maybe to circle, so talk a little bit, I'd like to talk a little bit more about style, but maybe we didn't fully emphasize a point that I wanted to make and that a point that I raised at the beginning of our conversation, which is that if you're writing a book that is fiction, it's very important that you announce to your readers what your character wants right away. And also, it's very important that you make it clear what the obstacles are in the way of getting it. So if I asked you to, what does Santiago want? Well, obviously a fish, but, and this is maybe a kind of like annoying university type teacher question. What is the book really about? I don't want it to sound like that. So if it does sound like that, I'm really sorry. But isn't there, this isn't really a, a book of, that is, I said a while ago, this is a human versus nature kind of battle, but not really. What, what would you say if I asked you, what is it that Santiago wants most of all in the whole world? The follow-up question would be, how do you know that that's what he wants most in the world? Where in the book does Hemingway tell you, oh, this is the real conflict. This is the ultimate desire in Santiago's heart. And the real obstacle in the way of getting it is, is what? What would, you, what would you guys say? And now this is a question that I, I'm stalling, you know, maybe to give you time, but maybe just because I have a tendency to ramble. But this is a question that I myself would have to pause for some time and consider. I don't know if this is exactly the right word, but I think it's at least a close word. Um, is he kind of wants, like, his dignity. He doesn't totally lose it, but there are illusions, I guess, to sort of his loss of it or his losing of it mm -hmm. um, with like the flag of permanent defeat, but his eyes are undefeated and things like that. And then again, not to spoil the end, but I think the ending kind of plays into this a little bit when he gets back to shore and like the yeah. reactions of the other fishermen. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I, I'm right on board with you, Kate. It, it, it is, he, he wants to prove to himself and maybe to other people. That's important too, that he proves it to other people. But I think he's so solitary that mostly he just wants to prove to himself that he can endure and that he's still up for challenging things, that he has his dignity. I think dignity is the word. His wife is dead. There's that wonderful detail about the photograph. And he's not religious, but he keeps this icon, you know, to honor his wife. He's alone. He's poor. He's weak. He knows that he's weak. He just wants to prove that he's not defeated. I think that goes with that, though, is pride. Um, 
Yeah. So back to Kate's point. Back to the Lions again. Yeah. You know, but, it's just something from his youth that he doesn't want to, to lose. But pride in a good way. I mean, often we can think about yeah. pride as a, as a vice, but there is a version of pride we all know that is, you yeah. know, synonymous with self-respect or dignity. Yeah, this is the word we keep going back to. Yeah, he wants to feel that he can be proud of himself <laughs> still. And, you know, maybe the question is too obvious, the question, what's getting in his way? So we've established his ultimate desire, and every good book needs obstacles in the way of that desire. So if your desire is to throw a magic ring into the fires of Mordor, you know, obstacles are orcs and evil wizards and trolls and stuff. Um, If your desire is to prove to yourself that you have dignity and that you can be proud of yourself, What's getting in his way? Well, his age. Is that too obvious a question? Are there other things getting in his way? Well, I mean, he's, he's an old man. He's been fishing his whole life. I think part of it is his, his own mindset about it. You know, he, he has plenty to be proud of already. He even says at one point that he has all like the knowledge and the skill. He has these, these tricks up his sleeves, you know, like he knows a ton. He's, yeah. He's experienced a ton. He's been to Africa. He's fished his whole life. I think part of the reason, you know, that he's not proud of himself is because he's just too hungry for more. This is a very good point. And he's too hungry for more. Later in the book, again, we can allude to this stuff that happens later. It's such a short book that it's really hard to divide in half like this. Later on in the book, he says, I shouldn't have gone out that far. So you're right, Gabe. He he suspects that he's made a mistake of being too ambitious or too hopeful or too something. And that can be a character flaw. But what do you guys think? Do you think, and this is a question I'll be asking, I think, Ella in the next podcast when we talk about the second half of the book. But let's, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on this. When he says, I shouldn't have gone out that far. Do you agree? Is he right to say that? Is that, I don't know. Is that actually an obstacle in his way? Like this kind of the bad version of pride, like this kind of machoism? I mean, I think it it goes both ways because, you know, he was, he was definitely overconfident in in his situation, but he still succeeded. But then, I mean, he suffered a lot. Like in the descriptions, it says that every time the fish pulled, it would like cut into his flesh. Like clear that he seriously suffered for this. And, and for what, you know, without spoiling anything, you know, it does go south. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and maybe perhaps he got respect from the villagers, but like, is that really what he wants? You know? I mean, I think it is kind of double-sided because he wouldn't have been as successful if he hadn't gone out as far. But at the same time, it was that same like overconfidence that made him fight so hard. Yeah. And, you know, almost accomplished so much. Almost. <laughs> yeah. Could we talk about character and characterization? Style, his style, his minimalist style has been alluded to. But I thought maybe we could spend a few more minutes on it if you guys want. And again, like, if you see the clock ticking and you're like, oh, can we please talk about this one thing? You must, you know, grab the mic and force us that way. Uh, but do you have any thoughts about what so this is the question you there are a thousand ways to be a writer a great writer you can write like david foster wallace in these long rambling very textured very 
pyrotechnic sentences. Nabokov, I would say, is on that end of the spectrum as well. Or you can write like Hemingway, use the vocabulary of a child, very short sentences. What effects does one have that the other doesn't? What risks does one style have that the others don't, maybe? I think that both of them definitely have merit. You know, take David Foster Wallace, for example, you know, it's so enriching, um, but it leaves very little up to your imagination. Pretty much everything is described <laughs> in almost exact detail. You can, you can literally see all of the, the events and, and excursions on this cruise. Like you, you can see vividly all of it. With Hemingway style, you know, obviously you can see parts of it, but a lot of it is left up to your interpretation, your imagination even with the the characters because they're, I mean, the narrator obviously just kind of jumps between characters' thoughts, but it's very, you know, third person, very matter of fact, which like we were talking about earlier, allows us to to see the old man as humane. It isn't like explicitly saying that. Yeah. Kate, any thoughts about this? Yeah, I have no idea what the writing term for this is, but in video game theory, I promise this is related. In video game theory, there's a phenomenon called uh, ludonarrative dissonance, which is where your actions as the player don't tell the same, uh, don't have the same themes as the story within the game. And I think that if you were right to write about this old man in this little village in, say, like Nabokov's style, it would have that dissonance because that's not the way that the old man sees the world. Um, The descriptions of the things that the old man is doing and that he's seeing are actually not super sparse. It's just that we don't see anything beyond that. And so I think that Hemingway's style really helps us see into the old man's head even when it's not saying his thoughts. This is great. So style is matching substance, right? Mm -hmm. Style is matching content. David Foster Wallace was this hyper cerebral mental verbal kind of machine that won't shut off and won't shut down, right? And Santiago, I don't mean to sound I don't want to sound patronizing or condescending, but is childlike in the way that Christ says that we should all be childlike. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he, he he's he's simple in the most virtuous possible way. He has a simple life. He wants he wants straightforward things. He's totally integrated with his ecosystem, the sea, right? And so, yeah, we don't need, this is a great, I love this multidisciplinary example that you've given us, Kate. We don't need this narrator to come in and contrast that protagonist's psychology with a narrative style that would be, yeah, too messy or too cerebral or too complicated. Style is matching substance. To go along with that, you know, we have David Foster Wallace, who's very much a part of modern, you know, first world country culture yeah. uh, going on this trip of a lifetime. You know, he's excited to analyze it and everything. And there's so many details. And, you know, I feel like at least in, in the world we live in, it's really, really easy to get caught up in like objectives that really at the end of our lives are kind of meaningless. You know, like I feel like a lot of people our age are, are so obsessed with their career and and what comes next. And, and they're so busy thinking about the future that they don't enjoy the moment. And I think that mm. um, 
David Foster Wallace kind of writes and, and reflects that because he's thinking about his career and he's, he's reflecting on how garbage this cruise uh, is. Right. And, you know, on the, on the flip side, Ernest Hemingway is, you know, he's just living a very, very simple life. And that makes it completely okay to talk about it in a simple way. It's like, it's as if, it's as if Santiago has, through his long life experience, learned all of the hard lessons that the persona in the David Foster Wallace essays hasn't learned. How to be pleased with the simple, how to live in the moment, how to not be anxiety ridden and totally neurotic, right? This old man has a kind of wisdom and a kind of Zen-like serenity. You know what I mean? Yeah, that matches the prose style. So there are these fancy terms. I love Kate's fancy term. I won't try to repeat it, but there are more fancy terms like hypotaxis and parataxis. I'll try to earn my salary now as a writing teacher. Parataxis, para, you know, from like other words like parallel, it just means going beside. Um, so parataxis is a kind of syntax, a kind of sentence structure that has discrete bits lined up in a neatly stacked way. So a couple examples, actually the, the sentence that you quoted earlier, Gabe, every day is a new day, period. It is better to be lucky, period. But I would rather be exact, period. Then when luck comes, you are ready. So parataxis is lots of short sentences or short clauses, independent clauses stacked up on top of each other. Another example of this is page nine. This is one of my favorites. This is the boy talking. And um, the old man asks the boy, uh, how old, uh, the boy says, how old was I when you first took me in a boat? And the old man says, five. And you nearly were killed when I brought the fish in too green. And he nearly tore the boat to pieces. Can you remember? And this next paragraph is the example that I'd like to put forth. The boy says, I can remember the tail slapping and banging and the thwart breaking and the noise of the clubbing. I can remember you throwing me into the bow where the wet coiled lines were and feeling the whole boat shiver and the noise of you clubbing him like chopping a tree down and the sweet blood smell all over me. Hemingway has such a good ear for dialogue. We instantly are convinced that this is a little boy talking, aren't we? Because you've been around kids. If you ask a kid, how was your day? Or what did you do today? The kid will say something like, we went to the beach and it was hot and I got ice cream and the ice cream fell and the seagulls eat it and I cried and I was sad and then we went home. It'll just be these independent clauses linked with the, the conjunction and this and this and this and this and this. Hemingway has listened to the way that humans talk and knows how to replicate that sense of childlike simplicity, structural simplicity, and is embedding it in the dialogue. But he even embeds it into Santiago's interior monologue, interior narration, I think, to mirror, again, we're talking about the way that the boy is a foil for Santiago. Do you think that there are risks? Maybe this will be the last style question I'll ask, and then talk a little bit more about setting maybe, or anything else that you two want to talk about. So what are the risks or the downsides of this kind of simple writing style or of using parataxis too much as opposed to hypotaxis? So hypotaxis would be like a David Foster Wallace sentence in which there's constant syntactical interruptions or linked dependent clauses, really long structures. If you choose the Hemingway route, and it's very simple and very plain and the sentences are short, what are the risks? What are the downsides? What do you miss out on? How could this go wrong, you know? I mean, I feel like if we're, we're looking at it from a writer's perspective, yeah, 
if you do this poorly, um, people are going to think you're a bad writer. <laughs> um, well, that's good. Say more about that, Gabe. I think Ernest Hemingway did a, a wonderful job of illustrating his his novel to be simplistic yet have a ton of meaning within it. Um, he somehow found that perfect medium, but you know, I feel like if I were to write an essay, you know, like me personally to write an essay in this style, it would probably sound like I didn't graduate high school. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a very important risk. The risk is that you, that's exactly right. I'm just now restating what you said, but I'm probably restating it worse. The risk is that you, you maybe you bore your reader and you don't establish any kind of authorial, authorial authority. You, you lose the ethos of intelligence. I think you're probably right. That is a risk. Any, and I'm just asking now follow-up questions. I'm not sure how I would answer this. How does Hemingway convince you that he does have authorial intelligence? Even though the sentences are very short and like generally pretty straightforward, it's not like he leaves out every important detail. Like he does talk about, you know, the lavender striped pectoral fins of, you know, these fish. And it's like, we get those details. We just don't get them in a David Foster Wallace way. Right. That's a great answer. And the, that's, that's, that would be probably where my mind exactly would go. The lavender, how beautiful are those details, by the way? The lavender of the fish and the purples of the fish. And there's one moment, I won't be able to find it, but the old man thinks to himself some detail like the lavender had faded to silver in the air or something. And then there's another detail where he says like, I want the fish to come up because then his vertebrae will fill with air and he won't be able to submerge back down into the water. So clearly this is written by a person. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be the most shocking thing in the whole world to learn that Ernest Hemingway had never gone marlin fishing? And this was all just like hypothetical book learning. I wouldn't believe it. Clearly this has been written by a person who knows this world, who has done this before who speaks about the details in a, in a very, very authoritative way. So if you're going to choose this style of simple paratactic syntax, I think you might be obligated to turn the volume up on the telling and ethos establishing detail. Make sure that your readers are convinced that you know what you're talking about. Excellent. So um, maybe one last question. And again, I'm not, I'm asking these questions because I don't have, but wish I did answers to them. It has to do with, the question has to do with setting. So let's just turn to, oh, actually, before we do that, I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to add on top of Kate's answer to what do you do to mitigate against the risks of simple language? Kate's answer is great. One way is to increase the amount of authoritative details. Another is to subtly, I mean, you, there's still a lot you can do inside of a paratactical structure. There's still a lot of ways that you can vary and manipulate language to, to signal to your reader that you are in absolute control of the way that you're writing. So it's a paragraph that starts now. And I'll read that paragraph in the first bit. Did you find the page, Gabe? Um, is it the one that says, now he said aloud and struck yeah, hard? That's right. What page is that on? Um, it says 44. Oh. Um, well, I'm just using a PDF that I found. Okay. Well, people are getting the general sense of where to find this. So I'll just read this. Now, he said aloud, and struck hard with both hands, gained a yard of line, and then struck again and again, swinging with each arm alter alternately, 
on the cord with all the strength of his arms and the pivoted weight of his body. Nothing happened. The fish just moved away slowly and the old man could not raise him an inch. So this is a, I think we can learn a lot from this too, where not every sentence in the book should be the same length. And it's important maybe in a, in a scene in which there's some kind of dynamic action happening that you write this really excited long sentence and you follow it up with this sentence that lets the reader catch his or her breath. Nothing happened, right? So there are still ebbs and flows in the sentence structure and the, and the sentence variation, right? Okay, now setting. So my question about setting, and then we'll wrap up is, if you're writing a book, I think particularly fiction, because it's all invented when you're writing fiction. How do you know as a writer how much setting description you need? And also, how do you know when you need to insert some setting description? This is a hard question to answer, I think. While you're thinking about this, let me just read a little bit of setting that Hemingway puts in. I just think it's very beautiful. So this is about 10 pages before that previous section. It's on page 32 of my edition. It's in a paragraph that starts, the clouds over the land now rose. So I'll just read that paragraph. The clouds over the land now rose like mountains and the coast was only a long green line with the gray blue hills behind it. The water was a dark blue now, so dark that it was almost purple. As he looked down into it, he saw the red sifting of the plankton in the dark water and the strange light the sun made now. He watched his lines to see them go straight down out of sight into the water and he was happy to see so much plankton because it meant fish. The strange light the sun made in the water, now that the sun was higher, meant good weather, and so did the shape of the clouds over the land. But the bird was almost out of sight now, and nothing showed on the surface of the water but some patches of yellow, sun-bleached sargasso weed, and the purple, formalized, iridescent, gelatinous bladder of a Portuguese man-of-war floating close behind the boat. It turned on its side and then righted itself. It floated cheerily as a bubble with its long, deadly purple filaments trailing a yard behind it in the water. Just notice, too, that in this paragraph, we do get a little bit of Nabokov-esque. There's this, this bladder, this jellyfish gets like five adjectives, purple, formalized, iridescent, gelatinous, right? So he's letting himself be decorative, too. Anyway, what are your guys' thoughts on the way that setting is handled in this book and how a writer knows when to put setting in and how much setting is necessary. Anything to say about this? Um, I think it's tricky if you're doing like an omniscient third, um, but this is a pretty close third person, I would say. Yeah. And so most, if not all of the details are things that Santiago would see and appreciate. And it's not going beyond that. Good. If you're doing, so we'll talk more about this as the fiction unit progresses, but there is unlimited third omniscient, third person perspective where the narrator is like God and can see into every corner and into every mind. Then there's another type of third person narration Kate's referring to, which is kind of limited third person where the camera is sitting on the shoulder of one person more or less, and you get into his or her mind. But yeah, so if this is your narrative style, if this is your point of view, this can help you know that you can linger on setting when it is somehow interrelated to characterization that you can use, you can kill two birds with one stone. You can use setting as a way to highlight character and you can use character as a way to highlight setting. Well, I think it just depends on what you're trying to get across to your readers. I think Lord of the Rings is a great example of this. It's, it's more along the lines of David Foster Wallace. Like it's very vivid imagery. Mm. 
Whereas, you know, you can take many other works of fiction, which will be almost all up to the, to the imagination of the reader. And it just, it just depends on what you as an author want to convey. Right. With the yeah. old man, it's, it's limited, but it's, it's just enough to, to kind of allow you to picture that. Great. Good. Thank you so much. This has been a real treat for me. Thank you both so much. Of course. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right. Now it's time for today's writing prompt. Like I said, this writing prompt comes from Ernest Hemingway himself. Kind of. It's not officially a writing prompt. In A Movable Feast, one of his books, he writes about his own life as a writer in Paris. And there's this marvelous paragraph in which he's giving himself some kind of encouragement and some kind of practical wisdom, I think, that we can apply to our own writing practice. So I'm going to read the paragraph and then describe how to do this writing prompt if you'd like. Remember, these are all just optional. So this is Hemingway talking. Sometimes when I was starting a new story and I could not get it going, I would sit in front of the fire and squeeze the peel of the little oranges into the edge of the flame and watch the sputter of blue that they made. I would stand and look out over the roofs of Paris and think, do not worry, you have always written before and you will write now. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. It was easy then because there was always one true sentence that I knew or had seen or had heard someone say. If I started to write elaborately or like someone introducing or presenting something, I found that I could cut that scroll work or ornament out and throw it away and start with the first true, simple, declarative sentence I had written. End of quote. I think this is so great and so wise. So the writing prompt is especially designed to get you out of writer's block or to help you revise a piece of writing that you know for some reason isn't going well. So the first version of this writing prompt is to get a blank piece of paper in front of you and down the page, even in list form, these don't have to be paragraphs. The sentences don't have to be connected necessarily. So it can be one sentence and then press enter and then a new sentence. You can kind of make this into a list. Simply write a sentence that you know is true. It can be a sentence about what you're looking at. It can be a sentence about how you feel. It can be a quote that you heard someone say. The only requirement for this sentence is that it is true. I would urge you, as Hemingway urges himself, to not attempt to write elaborately. Do not try to present something or introduce something, as Hemingway says. Don't try to dazzle. Don't try to impress. Don't try to be poetic. Only write what is true. That's all you're doing right now. Write one true sentence press enter. Write another true sentence. Unconnected, maybe from the first. Press enter again. Keep writing true sentences until you have a a page full of sentences that are true. I believe that one or two or more of those sentences will inspire a story, a poem, an essay. Find the, the few sentences on that page that spark something in you, that feel alive to you, that feel like the beginning of a story that you want to hear the end of, and pick those out from your list and add a second true sentence. And then add a third true sentence. You see where I'm going with this. If you write 20,000 such sentences, you will have written a novel. The second version of this uh, writing prompt is to take a piece of writing, a draft of something that you've already written, and that you don't really love, something's wrong with it, you can't quite name what it is, but it's just not 
It doesn't seem alive to you. Read through it and cross out every sentence that isn't true. Or maybe, you know, depending on what state it's in, maybe a faster way to do this would be to highlight or underline every sentence that is true. Again, by true, we mean it states something objective about some, the way something looks, the way that you feel, the way that someone said a particular sentence or phrase and you copied it down. It has to be true. Do not write elaborately. Do not try to show off. Highlight every sentence that you think is true, every single word of it is true, and delete everything else. And start a new draft using those remaining true sentences as the core of the next draft. And to continue the motif of fishing, to conclude this recording, I'd like to read one of my favorite fishing poems. It's called The Fish, and it's by Elizabeth Bishop. I caught a tremendous fish and held him beside the boat, half out of water, with my hook fast in the corner of his mouth. He didn't fight. He hadn't fought at all. He hung a grunting weight, battered and venerable and homely. Here and there his brown skin hung in strips like ancient wallpaper, and its pattern of darker brown was like wallpaper, shapes like full-blown roses, stained and lost through age. He was speckled with barnacles, fine rosettes of lime, and infested with tiny white sea lice, and underneath two or three rags of green weed hung down. While his gills were breathing in the terrible oxygen, the frightening gills, fresh and crisp with blood, that can cut so badly, I thought of the coarse white flesh packed in like feathers, the big bones and the little bones, the dramatic reds and blacks of his shiny entrails, and the pink swim bladder, like a big peony. I looked into his eyes, which were far larger than mine, but shallower and yellowed, the irises backed and packed with tarnished tinfoil, seen through the lenses of old scratched isinglass. They shifted a little, but not to return my stare. It was more like the tipping of an object toward the light. I admired his sullen face, the mechanism of his jaw, and then I saw that from his lower lip, if you could call it a lip, grim, wet, and weapon-like, hung five old pieces of fish line, or four and a wire leader, with the swivel still attached, with all their five big hooks grown firmly in his mouth. A green line frayed at the end where he broke it, two heavier lines, and a fine black thread still crimped from the strain and snap when it broke and he got away like metals with their ribbons frayed and wavering, a five-haired beard of wisdom trailing from his aching jaw. I stared and stared, and victory filled up the little rented boat from the pool of bilge where oil had spread a rainbow around the rusted engine to the baler rusted orange, the sun cracked thwarts, the oarlocks on their strings, the gunnels until everything was rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. And I let the fish go. I hope you enjoyed this recording about The Old Man and the Sea. In the next recording, I'll be chatting with Ella about this novel, especially the second half of it. So keep your eyes peeled for that. In the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, try some of these writing prompts, and don't forget that you too have what it takes to become a great writer. Bye.